Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back, everyone, to Graveside Picnic. And who is this disembodied voice that's coming through your headphones into your ears? Why, it's me. It's Carlo. How you doing? Um, I am haunting your airwaves along with Hit Factory returning guests, Aaron and Carly. How you guys doing? We are hanging in there. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> Living our best life right now, Carlo. Happy, happy spooky season to you. Uh, I'm, I'm very glad to be uh, having this conversation with you. I will say that. <laughs> Excellent. So, yes, happy spooky season to you all and uh, to all a good fright. Oh. And um, so in any case, we're going to be talking about the 1994 uh film and was this i forget is this the la the first and last appearance of brandon lee not not his first film performance um he had had a handful before but this was supposed to be That's like right. his, his breakout, breakout right. role like yes. this was going to jettison his career uh to to new heights and uh Many probably already know the unfortunate uh, truth and, and what actually occurred. But if not, I'm sure we'll talk about it. Oh, we will. Um, and uh, that is The Crow, folks. Um, so uh, I, 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 there is a, as you can probably tell just from my tone and how I've been talking about this already, uh, this film has a huge, huge place in my heart. It warmed my my somewhat uh, secret goth uh, you know, <laughs> heart way back when, uh, because I mean, honestly, this is, and it's funny because I, I, I think I tried to read some of the comic after seeing the film and it felt way, way sadder and like more sort of artistic and like, it felt like dudes going through some stuff on the page. Not a bad yeah. thing. Just not exactly what I was looking for. I wanted to sort of skate that, that, that edge. Right. Cause you know, I didn't want to just, just feel super sad. I just wanted to also get some of that, some of that. You wanted sadness, some shirtless guitar catharsis. riffs too, to go, oh, to go yes. along with it. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as with any good musician on screen, we need to get some sort of a guitar solo in there. Totally. Mm. So you saw this in theaters first. Oh, hell yes. Um, <laughs> So uh, we, we this was another uh, instance, uh, much like the Mortal Kombat movie, where 
myself and like the other five or six guys plus maybe the same amount of people of hangers on and and sort of rotating cast of people that would you know drop by and play you know rpgs with us and whatnot um all got together we filled out like half a row in this gigantic theater to go see it and it was glorious it was uh, especially glorious because we were already, if you wanted to get an idea of just, you know, <laughs> the, the goth, the goth aesthetic, uh, in, in our gaming group was that we were all sort of playing, uh, the Vampire the Masquerade games, which, you know, f- for what it's worth, it's exactly what th- this, this film really reminds me of, um, that that period in my life as well as sort of like the weird gothy setting that uh that you know th- those games have which is just really oppressive it's always nighttime it's always <laughs> raining much yep. like in the city itself it can't rain all the and time so, though carlo well this is true this is true uh th- you know it, it does stop raining right at the end i guess that's right <laughs> After after justice is served. Yes. Cold on a nice platter. <laughs> but, um, um, so what what was your experience watching this? So, yeah, I guess I'll go first. I, I think and maybe Carly's in the same boat here, you know, uh, but I, I was a little bit too young to have engaged with this movie and have it like, you know, to, to meet it head on upon its initial release. Um, I'm, you know, just in, in the, my early thirties now. So I was, I was still a a bit wee for this one. Um, so I, I didn't at the time really engage with or, or much remember a lot of like the cultural conversation that was happening or the narrative around, um, Brandon Lee's, uh, untimely uh death you know during during the filming of this uh but that legacy i think you know carried through in terms of this film and um i think i actually came to this one second in alex proyas's filmography i think the first place Hmm. my introduction was with uh dark city his 1998 film and really really liked that movie and decided that i would give the crow a shot did not have any familiarity with the james obar uh, graphic novel or comic or whatever it is um, at all and remember really liking it um, at the time it, it has a very very similar aesthetic to to that other film Dark City um, you know everything is is cold and dark and like these cityscapes and rooftops everything feels very kind of like artificial it's rainy and dark um, but I the, I the thing that I think was most uh, prominent in watching it, which I'm, I'm sure might be the case for lots of other people, is just like how kind of magnetic Brandon Lee is, um, even under makeup and in a, a movie that has kind of like a dour tone to it. You know, something that probably could have been a lot, uh, a lot more of like a sad boy role, a lot more, of, you know, just kind of like uh, just something bitter. Um, and and it wasn't. You know, he's he's managing to do something really special here he's uh you you just kind of gravitate towards him he has moments where he kind of inflects his lines with some some much needed kind of like levity and humor and uh yeah i i remember enjoying it at the time um and have forgotten pretty much all of it until we sat down to watch it for for this episode and liked it again i think just as much as the first time yeah yeah carly 
this was my first time seeing it. I um, had known about uh, Brandon's tragedy. Um, I think maybe I like found out about that in college or something when I was like talking to someone about Bruce Lee at a party. I don't know. That feels, that feels right. Um, but never watched this movie when it came out. I was also a little bit young um, and was just like interested in other things like Avonlea and you know, that's the stuff I was watching, not the crow. <laughs> um, but what struck me about this movie when I was watching it was there were actually, and this is really the first time I, I can recall feeling this watching a movie based on a graphic novel or comic. There were sequences in this film um, and really specific moments where I was like craving seeing the panels because I, f I could feel like that they would actually work better um, in like graphic form. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think that's like a, I'm not meaning that as like a, a, a bash on the movie, but more just like, the movie actually made me more interested in the source material, which I think is a good thing, right? Like if the movie does that, that it's, it's doing something positive and productive. Right. Right. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because that I, I do believe um, as an aside, I do believe that that is something that uh, is assumed um, in this era of like, MCU movies, it's assumed that oh, comics are just huge now, right? And it's like right. when you look at when you look at the numbers, the people who are going to watch the movies are not. There is not a conversion rate that is really very good there, right? Um, and and it's sort of sad because you know this is it's sort of like this weird um, this weird thing where it seems like the MCU is like it, it's sort of like cutting rope from uh, that's sustaining it uh, yes. you know, it, and trying to tie it below them or something. And it's like, this totally works in Bucks Bunny movies, but I guess also in weird late stage capitalism too. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. No, that's a really good point. And, and I'm, I'm thinking now a little bit more about this as we're talking about it and realizing that I think why the movie is effective at, you know, uh, engendering interest on my part in the source material and really craving seeing some of these scenes or moments of exchange, um, you know, laid out in, in a panel format is because the movie has a, a little bit of like an artificiality to it aesthetically. Mm -hmm. And there's like kind of a wackiness to, to the, the sort of like world building and, um, and and the environment that we're immersed in in the film and so it made me it made me almost feel a little bit like we were in the pages of a comic book mm -hmm. um and there were times when I felt that sort of being distracted like I was distracted by it and then there were times where I was like oh this is actually making me want more of this I want I want to see more of this and I want to see it on a page mm-hmm yeah, I I think to your to your point regarding like the the sort of artificiality and and sort of inviting you into this world that is 
it's sort of straddling a line, right? It's straddling this really, and it's, and it's walking this fine line between sort of like what we've talked about before in other uh, in other cases, sort of like this weird campiness that comes from only can come from like a sort of comic book type of sensibility, right? And it's in it's sort of melding rather well with this sort of dark tone that is very pessimistic um mm-hmm. uh i feel and and part of that is that opening sort of shot right yeah. where there's sort of the the camera's gliding over this cityscape that looks hellish because there's like so many fires happening in the foreground and the background and it's flying over these and it's focusing on this singular small tragedy that's happening amidst this sort of apocalyptic landscape, right? And it flies through that window almost like it's sort of hinting already, oh, this is called the crow and we're going to fly right into sort of Mm -hmm. like this bird's eye view through this uh, round window into a crime scene, which is, you know, the the thing, the inciting incident that causes – the the sadness there's some voiceover there but it's voiceover that i think doesn't really overstay its welcome but it's also sort of campy it's you know oh if a you know if someone a crow can lead you know soul to the afterworld but if someone's you know has something too sad happen to them it can lead them back is essentially the voiceover and that's it <laughs> then you go into the right. crime scene and it's great i mean i think it's just this sort of interesting thing where it, yes voiceover is supposed to be like this passe tacky thing but here it just sort of like comes in gives you just enough and goes the fuck away for a while <laughs> yeah and yeah. and the tenor of of the sentiment in the voiceover kind of gives you what the whole tenor of the sentiment of the film is going to be it's this sort of like pining uh you know there's like the the love relationship that's at the center of this story but also that like there's something macabre and that like it's all kind of like over the top too that's all contained like in those first few lines and i think just to pause really briefly on the opening uh i was gonna say the opening credit sequence but there aren't actually credits rolling um the opening sequence where we're flying above the rooftops Aaron pointed out that they were miniatures. And as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, of course they are. And so I think there's also something about the fact that, like, they're effective miniatures in that you don't necessarily notice it right away. But then when you do, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, this is a little bit off. And I think it does add to the campiness that we're talking about, that there's like... I'm going to keep using this word. It it all feels just a little bit kind of wacky. And I, I really like that about this movie, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the more I think about it, the more I feel like this might be. I think that every Batman film since this film came out has been trying to do the same thing. Right. I would agree with that. Yeah, one hundred percent. I was also thinking, you know, just because uh, Carlo, you you guessed it on our show uh, a while back now, uh, but talking about a film that that 
feels strikingly similar in in tone and execution which is spawn mm-hmm. um you know s- similar origins as a comic book you know the the tale of a man wronged in life who uh through some sort of supernatural force gets to come back as some sort of invincible superhero and uh seek justice on the people that wronged him of course in that one it's you know a deal with the devil uh and in this one it is true love you know so mm-hmm. slightly different you know a little bit more romantic a little bit more gothic in that way um but I, I, I think that in terms of like the style of it, it's very, it's very nineties, you know, it's this very kind of like dealing with kind of dark dour subtext and, or rather text just in general, the, the comics themselves and turning it into something that has like a cool kind of visual panache and, and distinct style, but also leans into some of like the, the lack of self-seriousness that I think comic comic books had about themselves in a previous era like before the the mcu largely tried to define themselves by uh by their veracity and by their like link to the the quote real world Mm -hmm. right right i mean um so i mean this is a if we wanted to just briefly summarize uh, and I, I don't know if you guys want to do it or I could do it. It's, it's, it's a really simple story. That's the thing, right? Mm. It's, it's a revenge flick. That's yeah. what it is. It's simple revenge for, um, as you said, Aaron, uh, for cutting short uh, tr- someone's true love, right? The, the love that Eric Draven, which, you know, uh, it, it, it's such a great, <laughs> such a great campy name because it's like, Eric Draven, the oh, Raven, you say? <laughs> yes, literally. I da was Raven. like, they wanted to have Raven in this person's right. name. <laughs> and yes. Mary Shelley Webster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> True. I had forgotten. Yes, she's Mary Shelley Webster. <laughs> no, she's just Shelley Webster, but I was just like, Shelley. Okay. Okay. I, okay. I think what you're, I yeah. see what you're doing here. The spelling even. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, maybe they, maybe, uh, David O'Barr had, had read all about, uh, Mary Shelley's, uh, penchant for, you know, taking her dates to the, to the cemetery or something. Who knows? Right. Right. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we get also, we get, uh, Officer Albrecht, uh, played by the very, very, uh, very stolid and, um, and very, um, sort of, uh, charming Ernie Hudson, mm-hmm. uh, sure, you know, in the year of our Lord, 2021, ACAB, uh, perhaps even the same thing in 1990, <laughs> but yeah. he's great in this role because he is. He, he's, he's such a good, he was such a good cop that he decided to, uh, take a demotion and become a beat cop. Yeah. That's right. We should at some point in this conversation come back to the good cop thing because I feel like there is you know Aaron and I always on our show talk about like any movie in the 90s that is showcasing police officers particularly post uh the Rodney King beating and the ensuing riots is doing Mm -hmm. like some PR propaganda work for cops um Mm -hmm. but and this one does but i think it's a little bit i think it's a little bit more understated and nuanced so i definitely want to come back to that but it does it does commit the cardinal sin of all uh like mid to late 90s uh 
films just in general any anything from a hollywood studio system which is uh the cop is always black always because it's <laughs> because of the beating it's yes. like it's totally just yeah. like we're gonna pretend this didn't happen look yeah yeah i mean uh the, the minute you said that carly i i i actually was like wait a second when when did this happen is 92 of course the running mm-hmm. uh yeah. beatings and the subsequent uh protests but uh but yeah i i do believe that that is probably the the impetus behind well we need a cop but we need the cop to be black see because for sure totally um, yep how can we be racist if uh, black people are on our force that's you know ultimately the question that it 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 uh intrinsically well, asks i mean that's also the the answer that you get from a lot of people who uh will you know reflexively support well the crime bill uh well you know mm-hmm. the the black leadership where is like okay that's a bit more complicated but we can we can get it. <laughs> we we can and i'm not i'm not exactly the perfect person to navigate all of that but we can definitely discuss it a little later for sure um, yeah in in the in the meantime, so uh, Eric Draven and his uh, partner Shelley are murdered on Devil's Night, uh, October thirtieth, um, and uh, as a result, uh, they were supposed to be married on October thirty first. So they they were going to be the the Halloween bride, bride and groom, and. Um, you get like a, a great little opening sequence where you you sort of establish the the main characters in this uh, film, right? You get uh, Ernie Hudson as Officer Albrecht. You get uh, shit. What is her name? Um, Sarah uh, is Rochelle Davis. Davis. Yes, as Sarah, um, a very precocious, you know, sort of maybe eleven to thirteen year old uh, child. Uh, and she's, you know, been hanging out with Shelly for a while. She's friends with her. Uh, you find out why later, but, uh, she asks after them and she's like, you don't need to lie. You know, basically she asks if they're going to be okay. And, you know, the, uh, uh, officer Albrecht assures her that it'll be fine. And she's like, you don't have to lie to me officer. And, you know, you get the, that's the opening sequence and fade to black. One year later, Eric Draven, sort of gasping just sort of pops out of the grave that he's been laid into uh in a great sequence i i did like some of the details uh where he's like his his suit that he's wearing is split up the back yeah. as mm-hmm. you know anyone anyone who's ever seen how you prepare a corpse would have uh you do get some interesting details later like when he dresses himself that they've sort of plastered over the uh, gunshot wounds that he received um, and so on. But uh, he pops out of his grave uh, gasping and in pain and slowly starts to cut a swath through the uh, gangsters who had originally been sent to uh, get them out of their apartment uh, in, in a, a, a move by their, I guess, uh, gang leader top dollars uh sort of uh idea behind gentrifying the entire neighborhood or just clearing shit out yeah so it's a very, very interesting strange. like villain uh scheme i i was uh i was warmed by i think how just like spartan that was and how like it doesn't really it's it's not uh 
it's not anything tangible to the plot at all, but mm-hmm. I, I do love Michael Wincott as top dollar. I just I like Michael Wincott mm-hmm. in general. You know, he sounds like yeah. he's been smoking cigarettes since he's been in the womb and just like <laughs> has like a, a very kind of eerie kind of darkness to him always. I, I really I, I I like him as an actor. Yeah. Well, so um I I do want to point out that uh as I was re-watching this, I sort of like pulled it together and I was like, oh, this was like you know, this has a lot of uh, the the sort of like the gang structure and what they're doing. Um, you know, part of it is sort of this echo of like the 70s, right? That that nightmare of the 70s where, you know, like New York is just riddled with crime, you know, that type right. of thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of remember that a lot of the um, the fires that broke out in the Bronx were supposedly uh, after the fact, we find out that, you know, oh, yeah, there were some gang members that were just paid money to go torch places because, mm-hmm. you know, the owners wanted the insurance. And, yep. you know, it's not spelled out here. It's not even part of it. But it just just that little antenna went up. That antenna went up and I was like, hmm. Uh. And yeah, but, you I know, mean, that we totally had the same read um mm-hmm. and just the i mean you bring up a really good point about the 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 gang affiliations but also that there are institutional ties there like none of that is necessarily explicit but i also think the thing that this movie sets forth is an idea that you know we see in a lot of movies around this era where it's sort of talking about like you know, these, these cesspools of evil, like Mm. these cities that are rotting away um, because of the evil that's overtaking them. Like that, that is, uh, that's where sort of like a, a moral higher ground, a goodness needs to come in order to address the issues, you know, not ever talking about the material conditions of the people that you know, live in those cities being a factor or anything like that. And we talk about this uh, on our Spawn episode, actually. Mm-hmm. A lot of these films, um, particularly ones that were adaptations of comics, I think we mentioned like Constantine and a couple of other ones uh, in the same era that, you know, sort of present us with the idea that the reason for society's ills is that there is evil in the world. Um, and using that as, uh, you know, uh, an explanation for why bad things happen. And the Mm -hmm. only way to address the bad things is with goodness, with, um, you know, purity and morality and cleanliness, right. And manners, um, that that will sweep away the terror um, that runs rampant in these cities. Again, never ever talking about the fact that like material immiseration of of uh, many people in urban centers um, is why crime happens, or you know that's it's all from a certain amount of material desperation. Um, and this movie was no was no different. It presents us very clearly with that argument that this is the bad things that happen are because there is evil in the world. Right. 
Well, and, and I think it, it puts a, a nice little bow on it because Top Dollar and his, I'm going to say his, it's his girlfriend because I, I know that in the, in the film, he says that Micah is his sister played by, uh, the, the, the very stunning Bai Ling, but they're not brother and sister. I mean, unless we're we're in sort of House of Usher land, right? Um, <laughs> uh, but in any case, the point being that not only is Top Dollar a gangster, not in, not only is he sort of uh, worldly evil. But he's also like supernaturally evil. He's like a satanic mm-hmm. force. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, where he preys on, you know, th- he and Micah prey on, you know, their their little playthings, other women, what have you, and then extract their eyes in some sort of mm-hmm. weird ritual that yeah. involves burning the eyes and snorting cocaine. Yeah. Which, you know. You could do just one of them. It's it's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everything about him is just like, you know, just has this like kind of preternatural, like evilness to it. Like they, they don't even ever explain like what's going like they call all of their like lackeys, you know, like on Devil's Night. Mm-hmm. And they're, I guess, supposed to be, you know, like strategizing and planning uh, what what they're going to burn and, and the, the chaos they're going to create, you know. Uh, but it just looks like they're having like a, a gun party. It's just like everyone is just like exchanging a bunch of like stacks of money and bullets. <sighs> <laughs> and, you know, to Carly's point, it's like, yes, there is this like this carryover of this like idea of like, you know, like the kind of like filth of of the city and the corrupting nature of it. Um, and like you say, Carly, like, you know, like the, the 70s and, and early 80s being this sort of like, uh, you know, crime spree. Uh, but in this too, as you said, there's this sort of supernatural element to it. And then also, uh, like, a an animosity towards like bureaucracy and, and any sort of structure or order to their violence, right? Like uh, top dollar has that like fun kind of like, uh, soliloquy where he's like, I want, you know, chaos and, and anarchy and disorder because, you know, we started out with like an idea and like an ideology that, that spread and got popular and it became an institution. And now there's greeting cards for devil's Mm. night. It's, that is such a great, um, that is such a great little speech because it's, it's, it really shows that for whatever reason, even though it's evil, somehow, somewhere, someone figured out a way to commodify it. Yeah. And they made Devil's Night greeting cards. Well, so this this little monologue, this uh monologue light that he has in in this movie is fascinating. We paused when we were watching it to talk about it briefly because I think this is like the peak neoliberal message that we're talking about here where he he literally says greed is for amateurs disorder chaos anarchy that's more fun so what we as an audience are meant to take from that is that commercialism consumerism greediness that's actually all fine right like the thing that we should really be afraid of the thing that like this man who represents evil in this movie is for is for disorder Mm -hmm. is for like not 
uh, falling in line is for mm-hmm. bucking from the system. Right. Mm-hmm. So the message yep. like that inherently sends to us is like, no, nah, this like capitalism thing we're doing. That's good. The thing that's bad, the thing that's evil is you not following the rules. Because right. see, look, this guy wants chaos. He yep. wants disorder. He wants to destroy things. He wants to he wants to fuck the system up. He wants to not fall in line. And he he's the bad guy. You don't want to be the bad guy, do yeah. you? It's the threat of the unknowable evil. It's like the well, the go ahead. No, I was just gonna say that um as we're talking about this, you know, obviously the thing that comes to my mind is uh, another movie that had sort of a cursed uh, sort of existence because one of the one of its actors died uh, not on set but you know as a result of the role is the Dark Knight right where right Alfred basically gives that whole little anecdote about the the guy out in the in the uh, wilderness who basically would steal the the gems that were being used to pay off the warlords and just burn them because or, or throw them away because some people just want to see the world burn and you're like that's an interesting read for basically you trying to <laughs> bribe a country <laughs> into acquiescing but okay. yeah right. Those those Nolan Batman movies are like low key, like extremely fascist. So I don't know if you've watched fascist. all of them recently, but like the plot of the third one is like uh, we can't give people nuclear power to help with like environmental uh, to, to help prevent environmental catastrophe because like we can't trust people like because they might well, use yeah. it to blow stuff up. Don't forget that Bane is actually behind Occupy. So uh, right. That's right. <laughs> he is. He is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think you were you were born? I was born into the Wall Street. Yeah. Um, he was. He was born into the darkness of Wall Street. God. That, that Bane. Um. But yeah, I mean, it. Uh, it's sort of what I've been like. I, I joked about this being the Ur Batman movie, but really it is. Ever since then, we've only ever gotten like darker versions of this same sort of uh, idea, right? Uh, which, you know, I think to his credit, Brandon Lee is able to give it a little bit of his, his like a little bit of spirit uh, uh, and, and a little bit of levity because he brings like this charm to it and you understand, you know, he, he was wronged, you know, and it, it becomes a more of a fable than Mm -hmm. precisely trying to map over reality or trying to say, well, this is, this is what reality is. And you're like, no, this is sort of like a little fairy tale. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like most fairy tales and fables and myths, they are uh, meant to deliver an ideological message to their, their readers and viewers. And I certainly felt like this one was like, I definitely felt the message of like, fall in line, like be, be good. That's what, that's what will, um, that's what will prevent you from, from plummeting into the depths of, you know, disorder and chaos and, um, and 
ultimately badness. And, you know, there's also all these like weird, uh, like clinical message messages from the nineties of like temperance where it's like, you know, don't, don't do drugs. Don't smoke, like eat a healthy breakfast. Like it's all fine. Don't overdo it on your hot dog. But just like, but, but that, that is the, that's offered as an antidote, right. To this corrupting force, to this evil. It's again, it's about like order and manners and cleanliness and temperance. And that's, you know, that is um, what was being espoused as like a political platform in the eighties and nineties by both parties in various forms. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of hinted at in the quote that they, uh, that the, um, I believe it's T-Bird makes fun of them in the sequence where they're basically torturing and killing Eric and, and sort of torturing and raping, uh, Shelly. Uh, he pulls out that, uh, quote that uh, apparently is from, um, Paradise Lost. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, abashed the devil stood and felt how awful goodness is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of that quote is, and saw virtue in her shape, how lovely and pined his loss. So it's sort of this idea that even the devil, uh, the most evil, the mo- you know, the, 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 the lowest of the low, you know, uh, creatures in, in the universe understands, you know, just how awful he is in comparison to virtue and goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, but the funny thing is that a lot of these lines are given to the gangsters to sort of crash up against, right? Like this idea that they're not really aware of how, like they know that they're doing fun stuff, but I don't know that, you know, someone like Skank is really aware (laughs) of just how bad he's being. He's just sort of following orders and, you know, all of them are sort of following orders. Yeah. Um, It's it's also just them being agents of chaos, right? Like they're like cartoonishly villainous. They are. (laughs) They don't give a shit about anything. They're like holding guns to each other. Like they're, I think they're, they're portrayed very specifically as people that just like, have lost all of their humanity, right? Like they're all these sort of like sniveling animals um, almost. It's like not just in the their dialogue, which is sort of like scattered about and half thoughts and, you know, sort of chortled out of them um, in like weird, like gargly laughter, but also that like aesthetically they're like very just messy and uh yeah just like they're it feels more animalistic and so Mm -hmm. you know i think the the way those characters are utilized in the film sort of serves this larger conversation we're having about or serves this larger um kind of like ideological thread in the film of of chaos and disorder and um you know sort of like lowering lowering yourself to your baser instincts you know the lack of temperance is evil like that is next to evil and cleanliness is next to godliness literally in this right, film right right i mean um to, to your point i think that i would 
probably argue that there is also a, an argument to be made that sort of like Tintin and Funboy and T-Bird and Skank and, and, and the whole lot of them, uh, the first time we see them is that they're taking shots while swallowing bullets. Right. So each one of them is sort of like a gun that works for top dollar, right? Mm, yeah. Because yeah. they're they're sort of they're sort of loading up, right? Uh, yeah. By swallowing bullets. That's interesting. Um, yep. Uh, it, it's also just like this revolting thing because I'm like, wouldn't that like fuck you up? But okay, whatever. I don't know how you're gonna pass a bullet, but okay. <laughs> they don't. Um, I mean, that's the thing, right? They don't subscribe to the natural order they don't subscribe to like um any of the things that would that would seem rational or reasonable or tempered in any way they're just they're pure manifestations of like excess and like all of the deadly sins right Right. Well, I, I would I would argue that maybe the entire city is sort of like uh, a, a metaphor for hell itself, and they're the de- mm-hmm. they're part of the demons, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so basically, the idea of Eric coming back is sort of like almost, um, and I don't know how closely this hues to the to the source material but in the in the film it it definitely gives you this feeling of what the harrowing of hell must have felt like to the demons you know right like yeah. those three days that jesus is dead he goes down into hell and just dukes it out with a bunch of people to free the souls that uh mm, hadn't right. been saved until that moment you know yeah uh and um so i, I it's just really fascinating as as sort of like this as we've been talking about, like as this sort of artifact of the mid nineties and what it's trying to say, even though it's trying to say it in like this almost fabulism, right? This Mm -hmm. idea, this fairy tale of an urban hellscape. Right. Um, But yeah. So uh, do we want to talk a little bit about uh, how it all sort of ends? Because at this point, like, he goes, yeah. You know, like I don't think it's it's very surprising. He goes bit by bit through the different um, the different gangsters. Has a couple of in- instances where he meets with uh, Albrecht, who realizes that much like in a Batman comic, realizes that he's he's so he's so good at uh, cleaning up the filth, right? That uh, he's a better cop than any of the cops he knows. And he decides to help him. Uh, he manifests to Sarah uh, briefly, uh, but is abashed. And and the minute she sort of like goes, wait, it, it can't rain all the time. And she's like, Eric? And turns around and he's disappeared. Again, very much like a Batman. Um, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, he has a couple of run-ins with Albrecht. The first one is again to to the the point that we've been making regarding like bringing a little levity he's like stop or you're de- i believe is a what uh stop or you're dead or this no is my, don't this move is one of my favorite lines yeah he says he it's says so don't move or you're dead and he says i say 
I'm dead and I move. It's <laughs> and so I just, like, great. Really like that line. It's really good, and it's mm-hmm. not like a quip. It's not tried to like. It's just like he's telling him the truth. You know, <laughs> he is dead, and yet he moves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I just love a lot of the lines that they give to Brandon Lee to 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 sort of give. Yes. In th- in the entire thing because he does have a lot of really great little almost they they would be quips in sort of like a a lesser actor and or director's hands but here Mm -hmm. they sort of let like let him sort of inflect it the way he wants right yep we haven't been poisoned by like uh, you know the the Whedonisms of, of right. modern like superhero culture and stuff. He like soy banter. Yes, he gets to like just say things so matter of factly. One of my other favorite ones is at the like in the conclusion of the film where uh, Top Dollar and his his goons have figured out that like uh, injuring the crow or killing the crow might uh, make Draven mortal again. So they like shoot. Uh, shoot the crow and and <laughs> he gets shot in the shoulder um, and then Ernie Hudson kind of approaches him Albrecht approaches him and says like I thought you were invincible and very very succinctly very matter of factly he says I was I'm not anymore <laughs> and it's just like it's really good I'm like I appreciate that that's really great that's that's how this should be written I thought you were going to go for the top dollar <laughs> quick impression for you okay again yeah. also amazing <laughs> So good. Oh, fuck, I'm dead. Was <laughs> screaming. I was like, we need to replay that because I cannot believe that that was just, it was, it's, yeah. Call, 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 call fuck, I'm dead. Call, call, bang, bang fuck, I'm fuck dead. I'm dead. <laughs> so good. I oh, and, and let's not forget the king. Tony Todd is Hell yeah. uh, top dollars enforcer in the, all of yes. this. Yeah. He looks He's, great in this movie. Oh, he looks so fuck. good. Honestly, he looks like. Like he is the only like from here on out, no one else can wear a fedora if it's not Tony Todd. That's right. In this mm-hmm. movie, I'm sorry. Totally. That is, that is it. Um, and his like his like weird sort of like Himmler glasses. I don't even mm-hmm. know. What they're, for, but yeah, they're, they're like <laughs> reflective, like circular rims and like some pinstripes. It felt it very great. sort of like Spielberg Nazi aesthetic, you know. <laughs> um, oh, I, like I, the like the dude from Indiana Jones. Yeah, I like, gotcha. Yep. Um, and he's just, he's so menacing. He's in the movie for maybe like three minutes max, like total screen time, but he's, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's a total scene stealer. I mean, it's, it's Tony Todd. You it's, know? Tony it's Tony Todd. Todd. I also like, I was curious cause of just like how like lumbering a presence he is. I just looked it up right now. Tony Todd is six foot five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that feels yes. right. Yeah. That feels right. He's just, he's, he's massive. He seems like a tall dude. Yeah. He just, in, in the movie, I mean like he dwarfs everybody. He's yeah. just like such an imposing force. It rocks. But yeah. Um, so I, I do want to go into this because, again, to, to I think to my theory that Top Dollar is sort of like this. I I I would argue that Top Dollar is like I would say, and in, in my own sort of like, uh, I hate to use this phrase, but headcanon, <laughs> um, like Top Dollar is run is basically another vampire. <laughs> yeah, mm, because interesting. Because he's not he, he like he he shoots him the one time and then when they're basically fighting on top of the cathedral, amazing fight, uh, the most goth shit ever. 
two guys, like one guy in sort of like, uh, I guess, industrial uh, metal uh, gear, dressed in, in industrial metal outfit, and the other guy's wearing a poet's blouse with a vest <laughs> and wielding a fucking sword. Yep. He yep. tossed away his gun. I don't need guns anymore. I'm going to be wielding a fucking sword to fight you. Yep. Um, also, the conclusion of uh, Disney's Beauty and the Beast. I just want to mm, point out like very like a near <laughs> frame for frame, by the way. Okay. Let's uh, beauty and the Beast. When did beauty and the beast come out? 91. Um, 1991. There's a, the climax of the film uh, is when Gaston and the beast have a showdown. Uh, Bell is in peril. It's raining. They're on top of his castle Everything mm-hmm. is gray. They're on the rooftops. You can see the sort of like shingles and gargoyles. It, it, it's a, it was a brilliant, uh, a brilliant and astute um, observation on Aaron's part. I, I think it's there's just, some indebtedness. Yeah. There. I just remember that showdown so vividly. It's very well done there, and and it feels very uh, artistically similar in this Arti- movie. Okay, except that see in Beauty and the Beast. You do not end the fight the way you end it here, which is no. the most metal goth shit ever. <laughs> Giving someone pain? Well, no, no. Yes, there is that, which is uh, in in the process of sort of gathering his uh, his things. Uh, Eric manages to uh, sort of absorb. Uh, uh, Officer Albrecht's, um, he, he stood by Shelly's side for those 30 hours while she was fighting, <laughs> fighting yeah. for her life in the hospital before expiring. Uh, he manages to grab all that pain and then give it back to him. But more importantly, then pushes him and he falls impaled on one of the gargoyles that then instead of spouting rainwater, is now spouting his blood. Yes. Yes. That is super metal. It's very metal. It is amazing. Uh, I just love that. Like, I was just like surprised and delighted all over again by that shot because it's like, it does not shy away. Like it shies away from him being impaled for, you know, obvious reasons. It's not, they're not trying to go full gruesome, but you know, just the shot of him just, laying there just sprawled over this gargoyle and the gargoyle just like spewing blood out of its mouth instead of rainwater is chef's kiss just beautiful it's gorgeous Mm. so um I guess maybe uh, since we've gotten to the end of the film we could probably talk a little bit about um Obviously, uh, the accident that led to Brandon's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also would like to touch. Let's circle back and talk about um, the the politics of like what <laughs> what police are supposed to look like in movies uh, mm-hmm. of this era, and then maybe do some minutes about uh, the soundtrack, which is um, something that uh, yes. near and dear. Yes. yes. The to soundtrack me, at rules. You, oh I, think, so I think you and Aaron will have lots to say about yeah, that. Yeah, of course. I mean, as soon as the, that, like, cure lo- that cure song drops at the beginning when he's like painting his face and literally says mm. the words paint my face in it, I'm like, yep, this is for me. I'm here. I'm here yeah, for it. Let's talk about 
Brandon and I, I definitely think we should talk about the accident. For sure. Carlo, do you do you have the details of exactly what the accident was or or if not I can I can relay it. I I I have the uh honestly I have the broad strokes of it. Mm-hmm. Um and and supposedly uh I was just looking up this um this interview with Dave Brown who apparently was working on set uh, there and and mentioning that you know, as with the more recent uh, accident uh, that we've heard about, uh, yeah, it it wasn't just one accident; it was a cascade of different smaller mistakes that then then right. led to a an accident. Here, it does not. He doesn't go into uh, whether there was any problems with. Um, like whether they had brought in someone new or what have you, there's yeah. some hints. Cause I think that the, he, he makes a point to say that um, they were running out, like the budget was running out and uh, they gotcha. brought someone else new in yeah. to uh, handle the props on set at the crow. Yeah. And it just, it just maps so closely to the few details that we've already gotten from uh, you know, uh, rust and the whole situation surrounding Alec Baldwin, that it's, it's almost uncanny. Yeah. It's, it's like, I mean, we it seems very really similar learned anything. No, for sure. And like, you know, I, I think, yes. So the prop master who I guess was also functioning as the armor on this set uh, was sent home early. There was no like details about him or her uh, being sick or, or any sort of like ailment or issue you have to assume that it was some sort of labor issue that they didn't want to pay right. for probably one of their like the union, like higher, higher, uh, you know, hourly or even salaried uh, members of the crew, you know, to be there longer. And the assistant was the person who took over for this particular scene. Um, I guess, you know, and, and here's another thing about it. It's like, I don't understand why live rounds ever find their way onto to studio sets, you know? Um, but mm-hmm. I guess for like, for the purposes of, of this film shoot, they were trying to save money by creating their own dummy cartridges. Like they were pulling the the bullet out of the casing, uh, p- pouring out the powder and like getting rid of the primer and then like reloading them into the gun, specifically into a revolver that for like visual and aesthetic sake, uh, you needed to be able to see the actual like cap, the actual bullet on it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they would have just been using blanks. Well, here, if I can jump in, apparently uh, what he what uh, Dave Brown says is that more or less what you said, except that they had forgotten to uh, address the primer. And so yes, exactly. There was a primer left and then it lodged uh, it it created what's called the squib round. Right. And and Mm -hmm. lodged the actual bullet into the barrel of the revolver um, without enough charge and without enough like propulsion to actually get it to exit the chamber. And then mm-hmm. the assistant who was handed the gun uh, didn't go through the, the standard safety protocols to check to make sure there was nothing obstructing the barrel. Um, and then they loaded yeah. blanks that then fired off well, the round into Brandon. Apparently that gun, uh, the, the one that we're talking about, yes, with the, with the uh, semi-obstructed, um, gun was put aside uh apparently i guess the the person who was given the responsibility didn't know that you need to really clean clean it out it was put aside for two weeks and and so two weeks go by 
you forget all I, you know, it's just human nature. You're going to forget all about it because you didn't do it at the time. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's if, also just, it's also just, if we're going to go back to the labor issue, it's like, it's the problem that the John Deere factory is facing right now. It's like the people that are filling in, right. Um, for the, the people that normally do the job are not necessarily going to, adhere to all of the safety protocols and and remember to do all the things and when you're on a tighter budget and um and you know short staffed like all of that stuff is much more likely to fall by the wayside right right and and you know and here it's they could have engaged with like safety protocols when they re sort of like re-engaged with the gun but i guess yeah like uh perhaps they were in a time crunch you know, there, there's a lot of incentives to just n- assume that it was handled before. Right. And totally. No one, yep. And they just loaded it up with blanks. And uh, it looks like that then expelled the actual bullet round out of the gun, uh, which then led to Brandon Lee dying. Yes. I, I just am unsure. I, I want to say... And I remember at the time thinking it had to be like in the cathedral, like that whole sequence where he gets shot mm-hmm. initially. But I could be wrong, you know. Uh, uh, from what I recall, it was uh, one of the. F- he only had like three days left of filming on the on mm-hmm. the film, uh, so they had gotten most of what they needed. And I think what it was uh, was uh, one of the flashback sequences. I think it was actually one of the bullets that was supposed to go into him from fun boys gun, um, oh, when God. he got shot in the loft. But wow. that, I mean, what, what you're saying brings up like a good point, which is like, as you watch this movie, knowing about the accident and knowing what happened, the number of times that like at point blank range, a, like a blank cartridge is fired at, at Brandon Lee or at any of the other characters, just like the number of, of guns going off and, and with the, the frequency you like watch it. And there's just like this, like sinking feeling you get where you're just so hyper aware of it and realize like any one of these could be accidental, like, and, and just be like a projectile that could end someone's life. And you just get, mm-hmm. you know, you, 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 you lose that sense when you're kind of, you know, immersed in something like a, like a Tony Scott film where the ending is just like a cacophony of like gunshots and blood. Um, but you know, maybe we shouldn't be, but yeah, for some reason here, just knowing about the accident, like you are just acutely aware of every single time one of the rounds goes off. Well, and two things for me were happening watching this one, that, that sense of dread, I think is more prescient because of the recent events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and everything that's filling up our timelines the last, you know, 48 hours, um, and on top of that, like this movie um, has levity, yes, and I think there is a wackiness that you know um, we've been talking about. But I also found myself just feeling like profoundly sad watching this film mm-hmm. um, because of losing Brandon and losing him like for this movie, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that just, that made it tinged my enjoyment of the film a little bit. And, you know, speaking very specifically about the, the scenes in which he is shot, I almost couldn't watch them. 
Um, like I just cringed every single time. Um, apparently the shot that killed him is never featured in the film. Yeah. Uh, thank goodness. But I found myself wondering like the entire, even though I knew that I was like, Oh, was this the one that killed him? Oh, maybe like whatever, whatever sort of, uh, rational thoughts may have tied me to knowing that that wasn't actually the case kind of went out the window when I was watching this because I just, I just was overcome with, um, the knowledge of how he died and knowing that it played out in these scenes over and over and over again. And one of them did it. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's that. And then the other thing I'll add is, uh, not, I think there's that. I, I do that a lot with like a statement that I make. I'll be like, so I think there's that. Um, so that's the thing that I said. Uh, the other thing I want to add is that I think we should segue briefly to talk about Brandon. Like I, I also found, you know, it bittersweet watching this film because he's so, he's so full of life in this movie mm-hmm. and he's so charismatic um, and just like really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. So that I think was also, uh, it was a little bit of a hard, a hard thing for me. Um, I enjoyed him and, and think he's wonderful, but I was also kind of like sad enjoying him. Um mm-hmm. Because of the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, uh, so so if I can just jump in and like there's that um, sequence which I had sort of forgotten or had not made the connection that feels like the same sequence in Blade Runner uh, where he's standing there and he's – He's sort of startled by these little kids running at him, you know, with their flashlights Mm -hmm. dressed in their Halloween uh, costumes. And he's laughing. And it reminded me of that sequence, like right after um, Deckard, um, basically, uh, I think he murders the the dancer uh, replicant. Mm -hmm. And yeah. goes out into the street and you get that sequence where he's sort of like approached by like all these people like in little, uh, uh, I think it's, um, what do you call it? Bicycles and whatnot. Uh, and it's such a lovely little scene. And they they take a moment to sort of slow, do a slow motion of him yeah. sort of laughing. Yep. And, you know, it, it does hit. It does hit. It's it's sort of like that moment where you realize, oh, this is them sort of giving you something because the rest of it's going to be action. This is a, a brief uh, a drawing of breath before the big plunge, right? To, towards mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. yeah. So I guess my question then, because I, I hadn't really thought about that. I thought it was sort of a stylistic flourish on the part of the filmmakers just, you know, because that's what they wanted to do. Um, But I'm realizing that you might actually be right if what you're saying is what I think you're saying, which is that they added that in posthumously um, as like a gift for the audience members, because the only other time they sort of like linger 
in a shot with like a freeze frame or a slow motion is when Sarah is hugging uh, Brandon Lee's character. Mm-hmm. They like freeze frame it for whatever reason. Yeah. And I want, well, and, and, and yeah, so and that, is that what you're saying? Am I, am I misreading that? No, no, I, I, I don't, I don't know where the posthumous stuff would come in. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if they added like maybe not added, but definitely like recut it in a way because there are a lot of, uh, I, I, it's such a weird thing because it is a movie about the main character coming back from death, right? To avenge himself and sort of put things to rights. Um, but there's these very, uh, you know, in, in another type of film, it would feel very sort of maudlin, I feel. Like the, right. the scene that you're talking about with Sarah is so great because she goes in and she uh, sort of like looks in every nook and cranny of the abandoned apartment. Uh, so, side note, that cat is also a ghost. <laughs> how would that cat be that that white? Yes. And, that and how did it feed itself being locked in that loft <laughs> no. for a year? Yes. You know, like Sarah uh, even says, she's like, I thought you were dead. You're not dead. Yeah, and I'm exactly like, right. that cat should be dead. It's been stuck up there for a year. It's probably yes. dead. Uh, but but so and she sort of gives up and she says I thought you cared and you get that great like suddenly you see his shadow cast on her mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful shot too you know it's such it, it might be maybe I'm feeling a little emotional about it because it does look like he sort of materializes out of nothing to sort of cast a shadow over her um, and that might, you know, I might be melding like the, the idea of him having sort of died in this, this film with that shot and saying, well, you know, that's, that's one way to, you know, sort of, it, it's beautiful because it remembers him or something, you know, but mm-hmm. I, I, it just affected me because it's, it's really sort of well done and sort of, uh, he comes out of nowhere to, to sort of comfort her, uh, albeit briefly. And I think that there are these little tiny bits that they probably recut just to make sure that, because I, if I'm not mistaken, I was reading that um, a couple of the reviews uh, mentioned that the original sort of cut or they, they hint at there being an original cut that somehow now this version that they saw which is the version, the finalized version, um, is it feels more profound. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I'm unsure which which scenes got sort of reinstated or sh- sh- shuffled around, I should say, to make this be sort of a different uh, type of film than originally thought. Yeah. My my best guess, you know, when you watch it is that like certainly the voiceover stuff is meant to get us kind of just into the into the story sort of in media res uh, because there was a lack of sufficient footage um, to, to cover like a, a proper introduction. Also, that mm-hmm. it would have started with uh, that loft scene where uh, apparently, you know, Brendan Lee met his his untimely end Um but they, they filled out the, the movie pretty well. You know, it gets it going pretty quickly. And then all the stuff uh, in those flashback scenes later when he's like kind of being resurrected from the grave, uh, you can 
pretty clearly tell that there's like a stunt double there or, or somebody filling in. Notably, uh, that stunt double on this on this movie is uh, Chad Stahelski, who is the director of the John Wick movies and worked with the Wachowskis as a stunt coordinator on The Matrix. So um, that's pretty cool, I guess. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, good, you know, some really great stuff there. Uh, yeah. But OK, so um, I guess we can pivot to <laughs> all cops are bastards, even Officer, <laughs> Officer Albrecht. Well, I, I think a cab even unfortunately kind of includes Eric Draven. It does. He's a little <laughs> bit of a narc. Um, I just want to say. This doesn't have to be a beefy conversation. We've talked about it plenty of times on our show, and I, I think it's a, a pretty well-tread conversation, uh, at least, you know, in in some of some of the circles on the left. I I think the thing that this movie is doing, first and foremost, if we're talking about cops specifically, I don't think this movie is meant to be a rehabilitative uh, piece of media for police officers the way that, say, like, speed is. Mm. But that being said... It's a movie post Rodney King beatings and the ensuing protests, as you mentioned, um, that does include a cop and uh, therefore has to accomplish certain things. Um, and and so one, by casting a black man as the police officer, there's there's the sort of like uh, assuaging of of any wrongdoing through representation, which is a trope we still fucking deal with today. But on top of that a message that we get in a lot of these films um, in this era is there are good cops. In fact, cops are good. The people that are bad are like middle management, right? It's, it's the bureaucracy. That's the issue. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like shitty managers that are the problem, right? That are preventing these people from doing good cop work, Um, and that is very much the message of this film, right? Like his boss is like unnecessarily and cartoonishly antagonistic and is just like, (laughs) don't solve crimes. I'm putting you on paid leave or like whatever the fuck he says. I'm demoting a file from my office to try to solve a murder. It's just bullshit. Right. So uh, (laughs) like, and that, that is something we see come up a lot, um, in, in movies made proximate to this one. Again, not at all a central like thematic core of this film, but is important to note that even movies that aren't about cops per se are mm-hmm. still doing some of this rehabilitative work um, that Hollywood was, re- Hollywood was really uh, tasked with doing um, in, in the era post Rodney King. Yeah, totally. This one, you know, this movie has like kind of a fundamental like antagonism towards bureaucracy, which we already kind of talked about with like top dollar and his goons and also with the Mm -hmm. police. It also, as we all already mentioned, you know, has a, uh, has animosity towards intemperance as well. This movie makes the, the very common, but fatal, (laughs) uh, mistake or, or misapprehension of giving us, uh, what is effectively a drug addict, you know, Sarah's mom, uh, is like, you know, on morphine or heroin or whatever it is. Um, but as soon as she finds some sort of utility and function in society, i.e. being a mother again, she no longer struggles with her substance problems. Um, and we see this in, in movies from the 90s all the time. Yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely like one of those 
I, I have to wonder if uh, they, they didn't need to have her um, have some sort of arc that then uh, has her sort of uh, conquering the drug addiction, you know, because this is also like, uh, I believe it was like uh, a recent citations needed um, episode that dealt with, you know, it's sort of like the say no to drugs uh, campaign and just how pervasive it was and how sort of uh, collaborative a lot of Hollywood and TV is and it was and continues to be about oh, that yeah. type of thing. You know? Completely. Uh, totally. Completely. And the, the subtext within the text that we're talking about, which is, you know, find utility and like uh, all of your problems and addictions and intemperance will be solved. The subtext underneath that is true fear, intimate fear of the devil, of evil is what will cure you because ostensibly the thing that motivates her to be a good mother is uh, her, her brush with, Brandon Lee's character, who's not the devil, but he is representative of something, you know, sort of like otherworldly, mm-hmm. um, f- not of this earth, basically threatening her uh, to to clean up her act. He's actually more well, kind of like of an angelic proxy. He is. I'm not. I'm. But in her mind, this man has just come in and murdered right. her weird friend. And yeah, she, he, he's, he's got he's got a uh, a bunch of like weird white face paint that makes him look like some sort right. of demon. Yeah, he's, and, and uh, he's he's there and, to d- to dispatch of them, right? So like it, it is it is a, a sort of god and and devil fearing moment. Definitely. I think it's well, for it's the for su- the specifics of the story. It's I'm not saying that's what he is, but supernatural scared straight that's what it is that's yes exactly thank what it is. you that's much much more succinct than what i was saying that took me 20 fucking minutes it's all it's all good you know like i i, I you had to mention all of that to, for me to get to supernatural scared straight so it's it, it all it all works um helping yeah, each and, other and, and i i do want to say that um at the very least the the scene that follows that, which is uh, Darla, uh, who's played by um, it's Anne Marie Thomas, I want to say Anna Thompson. I'm sorry, um, Anna Thompson, uh, who you know she's appeared in several other things, including one of my absolute favorite uh, films of all time, Unforgiven. Yes, uh, we were talking about we that. Talking, wait, are you talking about... Uh, yeah, oh yeah, Anna Thompson. I was going to say Anna Levine, which is what she was professionally billed as on this one. Yeah, uh, she uh, she has this kind of kind of groove that she's in all the time. And poor, mm-hmm. poor Anna Thompson, like, sh- there's only one place in, in Hollywood for a Drew Barrymore type, and it's occupied by Drew Barrymore, <laughs> but otherwise it would have been her. <laughs> Yes, I agree. I agree. I think that that's the uh, that's her her poor that's her problem. She just was born looking like Drew Barrymore. And sadly, (laughs) yes. uh, In any case, um, so I I did like that, uh, even though she does get that that scared straight moment, um, you know, she's trying, right? She gets that yeah, scene. Where she's trying absolutely. to. She's trying to cook breakfast for for Sarah, and Sarah's being a. a sh- she's being a little shit. You know, she yeah, she is. 
Um, and then she's like, well, you know, like she, she bats her down. She sort of is defensive towards her and, and just, uh, shitty and calling her darling instead of mom and whatnot. And then finally she's like, well, I don't know why I bothered, you know, she's turns around and you get that moment where I don't, you're supposed to feel like that's, that's it. Right. But I don't necessarily read it that way because that's just the beginning. Right. Where right. she, yeah. Sarah there's, there's a gesture to come, towards a reconciliation. Right. Well, and Sarah needs to meet her somewhere. Right. And she's like, yeah. no, no, over easy. I like my eggs over easy mom and you know you you sort of get off on that foot where you go well okay it's it's going well but you know obviously it's it there's a lot more involved there uh if we're talking about like a full-blown recovery and sort of reconciliation is you know not not necessarily a straight line yeah Um, yeah the the like redemptive arc of a mother who has been a drug addict and abusive toward her child for like 14 plus years is like not going to be resolved realistically in a movie like the crow. (laughs) Like it's just not, you know, (laughs) exactly right. That's not what they're there to do. But I did like that, you know, the, the detail that it's not her, it's not Darla, uh, having to do all the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. th- you know, her daughter needs to actually sort of step up a little bit as well. And right. that's, that's realistic. I feel like that's a good step. And again, it's, it's not sufficient, but then again, it's not supposed to be, this isn't a, a movie about uh, Darla and Sarah getting back on their feet again. It's about Eric Draven coming back from the dead to kill some motherfuckers. Yeah. Which he does. Can we just say that T-Bird, uh, murder sequence is so good. Yeah, that's like one of the best car explosions I've ever seen the in a movie. The car explosion is hot. We're like man. the, we're like the like axle so, like pops off and so yes, slick, it's so great. I it really lo- is. I love it. Love it. Love it. I mean, T Bird gets a modern Viking funeral. He really <laughs> does. Yeah. He really does. Just like the duct tape and like he's spouting nonsense and and Eric is just like, you can't come back, man. Oh, here's a fucking, you know, explosive device for your crotch. See you later. Like, it's it's really good. And then the crow, the crow in Flames, a, a blaze. Yeah, the flaming crow <laughs> set with the lighter. It's fluid. just so fucking good. Yeah, it rules. It's metal. Yeah. Yes. It, it like honestly that that beats the uh the bat signal uh in in burning yes. uh, lines on the bridge or whatever in for Dark sure. Hell Returns. yes. They totally. also try to do it in Daredevil as well if I remember correctly. There's like the scene where whoever the detective <laughs> is in that movie like throws his cigar. I think it's like Danny DeVito or something. <laughs> like he like throws his, his cigar and it a, like lights ben into Affleck like one? a yeah, yeah. Oh, Danny DeVito's you know, in Daredevil. No, it's not Danny DeVito, oh, but it's okay. somebody um, like that. Honest, honestly, I saw that in in theaters, and I barely remember. I know that Daredevil and Jen, uh, is Ben Affleck, and Jennifer Garner for some reason is Elektra. That's but right. That's about as much what? as I get. Oh my god, it, it, I don't remember it's, any of this. It's wild. It's really it wild. Not a, it's not a good movie. I think the only the only good move good thing out of that movie is that. Uh, is it uh, Michael Duncan? Michael Clark, Clark Duncan. Yeah, he's Kingpin. Clark Duncan. Jesus Christ. What? Yes. Yeah. He's Kingpin. He he's is? great in it, too. He's I so mean, good, too. of course he is. He's fantastic. I had no idea he was in that movie. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, boy. Okay. 
We'll watch it anyway, sometime. No, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. You you can you can just live knowing those details and that's all. Um Carlo, I just want to say as an aside, I said <laughs> I said to Aaron the other day, he was like talking about Dune and like I I don't have feelings about Dune. Like I'll probably watch it eventually, fine. But what I told him was I was like, look, I have like a finite number of hours left on this earth. I'm not going to spend two and a half of them watching a Timothy Chalamet movie right now. I'm just not. It's nothing against him. It's nothing against Dune. It's nothing about Villeneuve. Just right now where I'm at, I'm, it's not how I want to spend the, the handful of hours that I have available to me in this life. That's not passing judgment on anyone else, but that's how I've been thinking about a lot of my media consumption lately. (laughs) I'm like, let's see. Uh, it's 30 more years of me waking up and working every single day and then having a handful of hours to just not do that. How do I want to spend that time? <laughs> so, you know, just a little, little life advice, life hack yeah. from, from me to you. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wellness influencer. There you go. The lesson here is you don't have to watch that thing if you don't want to. Right. Oh yeah, no, there, there's no one's, <laughs> no one's, no one's doing like no one's gonna check up on your homework. You're, in, we're all adults here. Like we're, all we're out of school. No one's gonna be sitting there going like, oh, did you watch your Dune? Okay, so give me a 500 words on Dune. <laughs> yeah, and it's not no even about Dune. It's just like in general, I'm. I think I'm being a little bit more. Uh, I'm being a little bit more like. Um, bratty about mm-hmm. what I decide to consume in my free time. It's all good. You know, honestly, like I had a moment like that uh, and and now I'm sort of swung back towards it doesn't matter. It, you know, (laughs) I think I'll be there shortly, Carlo. I can feel myself. I can feel the pendulum swinging. Yeah, like I I don't I don't think that uh, me trying to convince you to watch the amazing Villeneuve Dune is going to do anything, but you might watch it later. Who knows? It doesn't matter. Oh, I will definitely watch it later. I'll get around to it. It's, it's just, uh, it's in a different position in my list of priorities. That's all. But, but to to our earlier point, I will not be spending any of my free hours left on this planet watching the daredevil watching watching 2003's daredevil maybe who knows maybe i'll maybe i will one day when i when i reach like peak nihilism that's when i'll there you go or you know one 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 day one day if you're like uh, you know after a procedure at the hospital or something and it comes on tv and you can't really change the channel you know there you go totally the next time you're in a hotel and it's the only thing on at night yeah there you go so um Let's go, I guess, briefly to uh, just talk a little bit about the absolutely banana soundtrack that this bananas. movie uh, that this movie produced. I mean, these a lot of them are covers, uh, but they are such good covers of of existing uh, music that it's so great. Uh, you know what? Let me just go over a couple of my faves because honestly, uh, we, we'd mentioned the cure burn. Absolutely. One of the most up-tempo cure songs I've 
ever heard. Yeah, it's a banger. And it's great. It's, it's great. great to soundtrack that that particular sequence as well, where uh, Brandon Lee does that really cool kind of like swing out of the uh, like iron bars from the broken window in the loft and then back in. Mm-hmm. And that cool little yeah. like kind of crouching pose. It's great. Well, yeah. And it, it, it sort of signals in the movie like his uh, it, it's the uh, commando scene, you know, where he's like strapping on the, the grenades, except here it's all face paint and exactly. putting on like a, a very uh, the tight fitting black shirt uh, <laughs> yes. and lacing up his boots or, or actually he doesn't lace them up, but he puts them on at right. the very least. And so, look. Yeah. hot take here, significantly better than the Lin-Manuel Miranda burn. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> no, no, no! That that doesn't exist. I'm sorry, Aaron. That does not exist. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I think mine are what Burn, Golgotha Tenement Blues by Machines of Loving Grace. Yes, just banger of a song. Amazing. Um, Dead Souls Joy Division cover done by none other than the master himself, Trent Reznor in Nine Inch Nails. Uh, bringing a little bit more uh, 808 power to that particular cover. Yeah, mm, hell yeah. Uh, I guess apparently they also asked uh, they asked the the gang from New Order to do a cover, like an upbeat, like New Order version of Level Tears Apart. Um, interesting. Trying to sell them on it because obviously, like uh, you know, Ian Ian Curtis from uh, from Joy Division also met you know his end um, at a very young age and and I guess that it was kind of vetoed by the band they were just like we don't no we yeah. don't we don't need to do that yeah um I think <laughs> the the Rollins one is great uh simply because it stands out <laughs> as I, I it's a cover of a uh, of a suicide uh song but for the wrong comic book ghostwriter <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know that it's probably not based off of Ghost Rider, the actual uh, Marvel property, but I like to think that. Uh, and also, uh, what is it? My life with the Thrill Kill Cult after the Flesh, just uh, amazing sort of like uh, discovery that happened to coincide with the movie. Like uh, a friend of a friend had found out that uh, my life with the thrill kill cult had uh, some records out. We listened to them. It's sort of like satanic industrial or something. Uh, Just fantastic stuff. It's, it's really funny here because uh, for me, the Jesus and Mary chain song is, is okay. But uh, did I tell you guys that uh, I saw Nine Inch Nails for the first time open for the Jesus and Mary Chain? What? And guess, what? Yes. Guess what which year, What band, year was that in? I want to say uh, it's it would have to be 89, I think. Yeah, I would say that. That sounds about right. Wow. But, uh, at the Boathouse in Virginia Beach. This is Woo! back when I was a squid. oh yeah uh and i i didn't actually i was going to to accompany a friend of mine who was into that and i sat there just just gobsmacked because like after nine inch nails got off the stage sure jesus mary chain came on and they're the main act and i was like damn that must suck yeah to come out (laughs) after that because like 
Nine Inch Nails just had a better presence. You know, it's Trent Reznor <laughs> with Flood. Uh, and he was just dominating the stage. And you're like, you guys are, are fine. I just had not heard the other people before you. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, it's it's really funny because there's a lot of stuff here. I think even the the helmet song is great. Um, there's a lot there's a lot there that on the back half that I've probably forgotten, but is perfectly fine. They really front loaded a lot in this uh, in this particular album too. Mm-hmm. As as is the case with soundtracks sometimes, but the names alone are a great selling point. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, did you have any uh, faves? I mean, that, Carly? That, that Cure song is going to like always be like my favorite, but also like, I think the Cure is like in, I like, I love all these bands, you know, like I, I love Rage. I love Nine, Nine Inch Nails, Violent Femmes, you know, even like Pantera. I, I, I love Jesus and Mary Chain, like Psycho Candy's like, you know, up there. But the Cure is like probably in my top 10 like bands mm-hmm. of all time. Like I think Disintegration is like one of my most, most played albums oh, ever. Oh, Disintegration front to back. is... Yeah, like, like uh, it, it's honestly, a perfect record. Like, oh yes, yes, <laughs> and absolutely. So, yeah, just there's something just about like the guitar tones. There's something about Robert Smith's voice. There's something about just like the the texture of a Cure song that is uh, immediately familiar and also like uh, inimitable. You know that like it just it, it hooks me immediately. Like as soon as you hear it, I'm like, that is the Cure, and I love the Cure. Right. Well, I think that what surprised me here uh, about their track Burn is just the plain fact that it sort of goes against type, right? Uh, it's a very sort of up-tempo, very sort of energetic track uh, where generally what I'm looking for from The Cure, uh, and if I may reference Disintegration, is you know something like Pictures of You, which has a very sort of um, mm-hmm. flowing, melancholic sort of tone to it throughout. Uh, and this is not that, uh, which makes it stand out. You know, it's, it's really something. Um, but yeah, uh, it, honestly, if no one that's listening to our episode today has ever listened to the Crow soundtrack, do yourself a favor. Just, Just do look it. it Jam it. It's, Jam it now. Yeah, it's. It's on YouTube. You can listen to it from back to front. It is play it play it in your left ear while you listen to this in your right ear. <laughs> there you go. I think that uh, I've been trying to figure out if um, if our conversation has the right tempo, and I think I've I've nailed it. We 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 rehearsed this uh, a bit beforehand just to make <laughs> sure that it would it would just, just syncopate correctly with yes. the Crow soundtrack. We That's are right. true technical masters. One hundred and fifty BPM across the board. We hit all the right notes. We're we're rocking back and forth in four four to make sure that we keep a good rhythm. It's all there. Although Carly Excellent. loves a good three four swing. I love a good three four. <laughs> I, that's that's from my uh, that's from my. Uh, middle school band days and just excellent i don't know i love a, i love a waltz. <laughs> love a waltz all right so uh before our episode actually uh goes longer than the actual runtime of the movie yeah <laughs> yes a sin we try to avoid we we do try to avoid that here as well but sometimes you know there's a lot to talk about um so uh talk to me about what 
what irons y'all have on the fire. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is, uh, of course, as we've already mentioned, spooky season. Uh, we our, our newest episode that we have uh, for patrons exclusively is uh, on Exorcist 3, one of our favorite mm-hmm. horror films of the 1990s. Um, we've also got uh, one of my favorite films, period, period, any genre, yep. any decade. 100%. We also, uh, our, our most recent free episode is going to be uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of none other than Wes Craven's Scream alongside a great writer named Lindsay Lee Wallace, um, who has written some really excellent stuff for uh, our friends at, at Blood Knife um, and also has been chronicling a lot of the um, IATC, the IATSE um, strike provisions and, and uh, conversation happening in the motion picture industry right now. I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of that later on. Um, and then also at the moment, we are uh, planning to give all of our October Patreon funds uh, to the fund benefiting the John Deere uh, striking workers at the moment. And that's happening through the UAWD reform. Um, so we're, we're going to grant all of our, our Patreon proceeds for the month of October to them. Um, solidarity with all workers. And uh, if you don't want to subscribe and get content uh, from us, we would still encourage and recommend that you you look up this fund. Again, it's a UAWD reform. Uh, they're on GoFundMe. They're, I think, trying to hit their goal right now of $100,000 and uh, are, are getting pretty close but could use a little extra push. So definitely, um, if you have the means, make sure to, to donate to them. Um, and then of course, you know, follow us at, at hit factory pod on Twitter and Instagram as well for updates, my musings, my shit posting about Dune, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Your Dune posting. My all Dune right. Posting. Dune posting. All right. So you heard it here, folks, uh, go over to hit factory, uh, Give them your money so that they can then give that money to the strike fund over at John Deere. And get some content uh, in the meantime. You'll get to hear one of Carlo's recent episodes, a uh, double feature on the Adams Family. Yes, it's so. so good. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, don't forget, <laughs> you know, oh, Gomez Adams. Raul Julia is my Gomez Adams. And you'll hear all about it in that episode, folks. The um, ultimate wife guy, Gomez Adams. <laughs> oh, he is totally a wife guy. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Uh, but yes, in any case, I do want to thank y'all for coming uh, on uh, to talk about one of my favorite uh, films that makes my goth heart happy. And uh, just always remember, Always a pleasure. Folks, yeah, Always. Always, always a great conversation with uh, the Hit Factory, and uh, you know I do want to thank you for coming back on, and I want to thank all of our listeners for listening in to this amazing episode. We'll catch you all back next time at the graveside. Wait for